Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's guest producer Josh T. over there. Josh T. Josh Tizzy. That's his new nickname. Okay, oh, yeah. Josh? He's Good. nodding. Good. Yep. He knows He knows the score. <laughs> How you doing, man? Oh, I've had better days and weeks, but, you know, if, if only there was a LED light, someone could blink in my eyeballs and fix everything. <laughs> I don't, I, that's actually, that was a question of mine, like, uh, earlier about, you know, could you just shine a light in somebody's eyeballs and make this work? And I, that's probably the future, but who knows? Who it's not the, knows? It's not the present, I should Unfortunately, say. Unfortunately, no. So, um, soon enough, Chuck, though, soon enough. Just hang on another 50 years. Okay. <laughs> So we're talking today about optogenetics, and if that word doesn't sound at all familiar, don't worry. It's only been around for, honestly, 15 years. It's like the cutting edge in um, manipulating the function of brain cells to make them do what you want to do, or to study brain pathways to see which ones are responsible for what. Right. And it's really, really difficult to get across in the details, but it's one of those really interesting science tech things that the broad strokes are, like, really understandable, you know? Yeah, I mean, you're literally one day, hopefully, well, I don't know about hopefully, but possibly, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> going to be able to turn on and turn off uh, neural cells. Yeah. After we have modified them. Right. So we can control them. Yeah, and modify them genetically. That's a big, big key here. Yes. So, but th this is really important. And Ed put this together for us, and he makes a really good point. Like, if you read, you know, kind of um, cutting-edge sci-tech articles about this stuff, it sounds like we're right there. Like, we're about to start, you know, flipping on and off neural, neural circuits in humans any day. Yeah, we're not. We are way far away from that. We're still figuring out, like, the the ethical and legal implications of even beginning to try that. Yeah, I think the writers like that get they get really excitable about yeah. stuff. They're like, fruit flies are so boring. And they're like, we could do this and just think we could do this and this. And right. It's like maybe one day, many, many right. years from now, but maybe not even. Yeah, because of that whole moral and legal and ethical implications of it. But I think— um, I think there are probably plenty of people out there who are like, my depression is severe enough that I'm fine with the the moral and ethical implications of this. I just want this to, to fix things for me because it could conceivably someday. But we say that just to say, like what we're talking about is on the frontier of science, although some of the research that's been conducted has been successful, but it's just been conducted in things like mice and fish and fruit flies. Poor little... <laughs> Well, well, we'll we'll put a pin in that one. Okay. Not literally, but <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah, poor little fruit flies. We've done some things to fruit flies. So here's the thing, right? The human brain is uh, pretty complex as far as organs go. You compare it to your spleen, your spleen's just gonna slink away and be like, "There's no comparison here. I just produce bile." Yeah. You know. So the brain is far more complicated than the spleen, which everybody everybody knows. And the reason it's so complicated is because there's so many specialized cells inside that brain. Neurons, right? Neurons are just one type of brain cell. 
Yeah, and you know, we've talked about the brain a lot over the years on this show, and we always kind of come back to the same thing, which is as much as we've learned, which has been a, a ton, mm-hmm. there's still a lot of shrugging going oh, yeah. on in the room. Yeah, for like, sure. Jeez, I don't know. I mean, but when you look at the hundred billion neurons mm-hmm. and the quadrillion synapses, yeah, a thousand trillion. That's you know, give I'm giving humans a break here that we haven't oh, figured all sure. of this out at this point. Sure. No, we haven't. We and haven't. then you look at the brain. It's just, I mean, you look at it's just a big, gross, lumpy, gray mess. Yeah, it's like it's like a spleen on steroids. I know. Like, who even wants to get in that thing to begin with? <laughs> right. People who like squ- making squishy sounds with their finger. It should be shiny like, and, and sparkly and... <laughs> God. <laughs> you got to stop doing that. It is a little sparkly, though, if you think about it. Like, it's shiny because it's got, it's coated in, it's bathed in cerebrospinal fluid, remember? Yeah, I guess I've never seen a picture of the brain when it's really doing its thing. I didn't know it was so exciting looking. So, so okay, so the brain is extremely complex. And we figured out some stuff about it. Um, mainly what we figured out starting back in the 19th century, that all of these connections, these a thousand trillion synapses, um, that that allow neurons to communicate with one another mm-hmm. and carry like an impulse through the brain. All that is based on electricity, chemical electricity, right? To where there's a difference in the concentration of different types of ions, say like calcium and potassium, in the cell. So that when it reaches a certain concentration, it actually generates an electrical impulse and then that impulse can be translated or transferred to another neuron. And then that neuron may send that electrical impulse on and on and on until it finally reaches its destination where suddenly you're you're flooded in dopamine and you're feeling pretty good because you just tried a Krispy Kreme that was fresh and hot right off of the line. Yeah. So, like, when you hear people say or us say, like, when your neurons are firing, that's literally what's going on. They are tiny little electrical charges. Uh, we can call them action potentials. Yeah. And they measure them in tiny little millivolts. It's adorable. <laughs> it is. They have little bow ties on and short pants. Yeah, but there's little tiny electrical uh, triggers that go off constantly. Right, right. So, Or they don't go off, which, well, which also has uh, um, an effect as well, right? So, like, you can have something firing, 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 and then it stops firing, and you're suddenly not feeling pain any longer, which is great. So, you want to have them on and off, but it all is based on electricity. And we figured this out thanks to a guy named um, Chuck. Uh, are you talking about Luigi Galvani? Yeah, <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> and you know that famous experiment with frog legs where you can take dismembered frog legs and sprinkle salt on them and they'll start twitching or whatever. <laughs> yeah, those are always creepy. Well, this same guy figured out that you could introduce electricity into the brains of frogs and you can make the frog legs kind of twitch and hop in the in the brain of a dead frog. So it shows pretty clearly that electricity is what move makes the brain move and that the brain is what makes the legs move, right? And then later on there was a guy named um, Roberts Bartholo. Oh boy, this guy. Did you look up this experiment? I did. Pretty, pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. So there was a woman named Mary Rafferty who had uh, an ulcer on her uh, brain, which ended up resulting in a, a literal hole in her skull. So her brain was exposed. Mm-hmm. And Robert Bartholo, I guess, was like, "Well, well, perfect. <laughs> this is just <laughs> what I've been waiting for. Right? Is access to a human brain. So let me see if I can." stimulate these neurons by 
poking it with needles, her brain, Mm -hmm. and see what happens when I stimulate that with electricity. And he kept it super low voltage at first and noticed some things like, wow, when I poke here, her arm moves. Right. He's like, uh, does anyone have a question? (laughs) Oh, Mary, you do? But he ramped that electricity up at higher voltage looking for what he called a more decided reaction. And he, well... He argued afterward that he did not cause her death, but she had a seizure, she went into a coma, and she died. Right. So the, the, the kind of the sticking point here is, and he was censured by the AMA, but nothing really happened, was that right. he was experimenting on a human being, uh, but not with the aim of curing anything that was wrong with her. No, he even said in the study that he produced that anyone who tried to replicate this would be—, would be um, conducting, like, a criminal experiment. Yeah, that but it me, would be criminal to redo it. Yeah. I'm good. <laughs> right. I'm all good, but just don't do this again. But what's I, what was interesting to me is, like, it wasn't until 1946 that we started to, um, like, the, the scientific community started to enforce informed consent yeah. after the Nazi atrocities of World War II. Um, and this guy was, was carrying this experiment out, I think, in 1874. But even at the time, so in his defense... People weren't about informed consent, and there were like the ethics of scientific experiments weren't nearly as pronounced and structured as they are today. Yeah. And yet, his experiment was still denounced. Like, everybody could see that on some level that hadn't been like elucidated yet, he had violated something, which is actually like a, the the life of a person. Yeah, they're like, something's bothering me, but yeah. I can't quite put my finger on it. Oh, well, now he's hit me with the electric needles and my finger's going exactly where he wanted to. Oh, boy. Uh, the AMA actually banned human experimentation if it was not for the purposes of saving a human life after this. Very good stuff. So, yeah. what we figured out, though, from uh, Galvani and um, Bartholo. Bartholo. Yeah, he's got a tough one. A tough last thing. Um, and others who showed that electricity is the, the currency that moves messages around the brain. Um, that you can actually stimulate the brain with electricity to go around its internal drives and externally make it do things, right? But the problem is, is like if you're using this to study the brain, it's really clumsy. It really, like an electrical impulse is really tough to keep localized. So if you're trying to just kind of see what one particular type of neuron does, well, TS for you because you're electrically going to stimulate a whole bunch of neurons in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And it's not a very... um, a fine-tuned way of studying how the brain works. And again, it's really important that we understand what regions of the brain are responsible for what. So uh, if we're just kind of trying to see what regions are responsible for raising your arm, we might hit those neurons with electric needles, but we might also like kick the leg out too. Right. That just kind of, it's not as precise as it needs to be. Do you want to uh, use this repeated metaphor? I, I, it was a fine metaphor, but it was a mixed metaphor, and the first one really didn't work. Yeah. Let's just go ahead and say it. Okay. Because it does get a, a little bit more credible as the metaphor develops. But okay. I agree. This first one was a little rough. <laughs> but uh, just just take this metaphor, put it in your pocket, everybody. And smoke it <laughs> with some salt. I don't even know what that means. So uh, imagine a neighborhood or a city, if you will— with all the people, let's say New York City, mm-hmm. and people everywhere moving around. These are your neural. Uh, this is your neural network. 
Yeah. Everyone's going places. They're taking subways. They're riding buses. They're driving cars. They're walking. Some of them have, that have no conscience are in a horse and buggy in Central Park. <laughs> and It's Andre the Giant. He just stole it. <laughs> and uh, electrical stimulation, which is something that deep brain stimulation we talked about on the show, with something we currently are doing and are able to do. Right Just now. very imprecisely. So uh, that electrical stimulation is like trying to learn about people only driving Ferraris through New York City mm-hmm. by setting a city block on fire. That's where it loses me. Because it doesn't make any sense. Okay. I Should saw have said it, shocking entire city block. Sure, I guess so, yeah. That would have made more sense, right? Uh, yeah, I saw another analogy on, uh, you know how we always say when you can't understand something, go to like the kids' science website? Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. I found one um, called Frontiers for Young Minds, and they right. were explaining optogenetics. And they basically put it similarly, saying if you wanted to study the movement of traffic in the city, um, but you wanted to see, like like you were saying, how Ferrari um, car drivers drive, um, you want to be able to tell everybody when to drive. But the problem is if you're using an electrical stimulation, that doesn't just tell Ferrari drivers when to drive. It tells everybody in the city when to start to start driving and yeah. everyone starts driving. So it doesn't tell you anything about just the Ferrari drivers. Yeah, that makes sense. And by the way, Ferrari, you owe Chuck and me a, a new Ferrari. Ferrari each for all this buzz <laughs> Ferrari marketing Ferrari. I would just like to drive one once. That'd be fun. Don't, don't, set, set your sights higher than that, Chuck. I'm not we'll a car guy. See if guy. we can get a free one. A Ferrari would just stress me out. We'll sell it on Craigslist. What, I'm going to park a Ferrari in my driveway? <laughs> <laughs> Backwards, you'd back it in. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, so, should we take a break now that we have a, a nice little setup in hand? Sure. All right, let's take a break and we're going to talk about potassium and calcium and color dye right after this. All right, so people figured out pretty quickly that, yes, electrical impulses will make parts of the brain work, but it's not very precise. We need a more precise way to study the different parts of the brain to see what's going on where at any given time. That's right. And enter Lawrence Cohen in the 1970s. Leonard Cohen's brother. No. It could be. Oh. (laughs) Oh, man. You don't know. I was so disappointed. (laughs) I thought, wow, that's amazing. All the genius in one family. Right. Yeah, that's a lot of genius. Uh, And in 1980, it was further developed by a man named Roger Cien. Leonard Cohen's one-time stage manager. Okay. It was Waiting on that. Is it C-N? Is it... C-N. D-N? I don't know. T-S-I-E-N. Yeah. Anytime your name starts with T-S, I assume one of those is silent. I Yeah, but I think they together make a D sound. Oh, really? I think so. <laughs> In what language? Chinese, Mandarin maybe, Cantonese, one of those two. Okay. Oh, God, I feel like I'm drowning. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Grab hold of me. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. Uh, so... What they did was they worked on um, this synthetic dye, um, like I said, Cohen in the 70s, uh, refined in the 80s by Roger T. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Roger T, yes. You already, yeah, you already talked about uh, in the intro about the action potential in a neuron. Right. That's created that little electrical charge. Is, it's not like it's plugged into something. It's created by concentrations of potassium and calcium shifting around. 
Right. Right. So what they figured out, what um, Lawrence and, and Roger figured out, is that you can actually introduce the synthetic dye so that the dye is produced or triggered or it becomes apparent once a calcium ion concentration reaches a certain point. And if you know that a calcium ion concentration will trigger this action potential, this electrical impulse in the neuron, if the neuron suddenly is glowing or has this dye, colored Mm -hmm. dye, that's showing up under a microscope, you know that that neuron is just fired because the calcium concentration changed enough for that dye to, to become apparent. Yeah, it's like the very easy way to say this is scientists basically said, you know, when someone... Uh, metaphorically turns on a light in that neuron, that'd be great if an actual light turned on. Yeah, this is very similar to that for sure. And, and it still was a little, it's a little clunky um, because, I, well, I'm not fully under, I don't fully understand why it's a little clunky. I think it's that maybe you can't control it. It's just you can witness it, I think, is is the, the issue with it. Well, if we're going to further that <laughs> metaphor... I was really trying to skate past this one, but go ahead. The next step would be uh, you want to learn about these Ferrari drivers in New York City, so you just paint an an entire city block instead of shocking it with electricity or setting it on fire. Right. But any car that's driving on that city city block is going to glow. Or it's going to move through the paint. So you're going to get glow car, paint, car tracks. Sure, you're going to get <laughs> glow paint all over every car. You uh-huh. still are not just targeting the Ferraris. But it's better. The, the metaphor, sure. That's right. Much better. But it's still not precise enough. And I think where it's lacking is that, you yes, you can see now what neuron has just gone off, but you can't make the neuron go off. But, it, but um, Lawrence and, and Roger gave future researchers an idea. They're like, well, wait a minute, we're on to something here. Like, being able to, to, to see when a neuron has gone off, that is a great idea. Let's figure out how to do that, but also make neurons go off. Mm-hmm. And to do this, they turn to our friends in the sea for help. Yeah, this is really interesting. And this is where um, genetics come into play. Because uh, it is it is important to point out that neurons are basically the same. Uh, they all contain basically the same genetic information even. But it's that mystery of the differences switching these genes on and off. And why would one be switched on when another is switched off? That's sort of like what makes them unique among each other. Right, right. So, like, if you have a human cell, especially, like, say, a stem cell or whatever, but any cell has all of your genetic blueprint in it. It's just depending on what genes are on or off, that determines what kind of cell it is and what it's responsible for doing. You know, so maybe it's like a retinal cell and it detects light, or maybe it's a cardiac cell and it it makes up uh, heart muscle. All of them have the same DNA, the same genetic blueprint, but some of those genes are going to be turned off, some are going to be turned on. And the same is true for neural cells too, right? You have neural cells that are responsible for releasing dopamine. You have neural cells that are responsible for sensing temperature. Um, You have all these different neural cells, and all of them are roughly the same kind of cell, but they have different genes turned on and off. And once you know that, and once you can differentiate between one gene and another, you've just taken your first step toward genetically manipulating these different genes, you know? And understanding Ferrari drivers. Exactly. (laughs) So you brought us to the sea, and I jumped right back out again, and now we are back at the sea. 
Like the uh, the manatee. Uh, that's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but here, this is where it gets super, super cool. Uh, and sounds like it's confusing, but it's really not. It's really pretty simple still. Um, there are genes uh, in Mother Nature that respond to light, and then there are proteins that emit light mm-hmm. when they're triggered by something. They fluoresce. Yeah, I like to say glow. In fact, if you'll look here, I scratched out fluoresce every single time. <laughs> yes, you did. Wow. Glow. That's a lot of work you put into those It's notes. just a lot easier to say glow. I think people yeah. get it a lot better than fluoresce. I watched uh, Coming to America the other day, and man, oh, nice. Soul Glow is so hilarious. <laughs> it still holds up. That movie's even better than I remember, actually. It's great. Yeah, it's one and, we go back to a lot. Like, I knew Eddie Murphy was a charmer, but dude, uh-huh. that guy is one charming human being. <laughs> yeah. All, the, all the, the barbershop stuff is just so classic. It's great, but all of it, like, it really, it's just a great, great movie. You know they're sequeling that thing. No. They've been shooting it in Atlanta. Sequeling or, or rebooting? Sequeling. Oh, good. So, uh, I mean, I think the, the easiest way to go about a sequel is what they're doing, which is now King of Zamunda, Eddie Murphy, has a son who wants uh, to find his love. Yeah. But I think everyone's back. Like, Arsenio's back. Sure. They, uh, they oh, I'm not going to be mean. Good. They, they found him in great spirits, and he was eager to work. He said, yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> I can fit it into my skit. Then he went, woof, woof, woof. Did you see the Grammys the other day? No. I don't usually watch those either, but I happened to see the entire thing. Oh, wow. And um, I didn't Tyler, know that you were kidnapped and held against your will somewhere. I was. <laughs> it was like um, Mel Gibson in, um, oh, uh, Conspiracy Theory. Okay. I was tied to a wheelchair and my eyes were taped open. So you watched all of it, huh? Yeah, but— I haven't watched um, all the Grammys since I was like 13, probably. I haven't either. It was really something. It's like a, a marathon or an ultrathon, really. Mm-hmm. But um, Tyler, the creator, did like a live thing, and it was like amazing, him. dude. Yeah. I've never heard a single second of any of his songs or oh, seen really? him perform or anything, but I'm, I like that guy now. Yeah, he's great. And, you know, I listened to that early—I uh, can't even remember the acronym, but his sort of uh, hip-hop collective— band that they all started out of that like Frank Ocean came out of that Tyler the Creator and a bunch of other guys whoa what's it called oh what was it do you know Odd Future and then it had another like five or six words after that Odd Future was the shortened version oh nice good stuff well, very good stuff. Thanks to Josh T for swooping in and that uh, that the first Frank Ocean album was is amazing I've not heard that either. Oh, man, it's so good. Channel Orange, I think. I'm always confused by rappers who who just have normal names. Uh, Frank Ocean, yeah, he's kind of a singer-crooner type. I mean, he does it okay. all. Okay, all right, now that makes sense. Yeah, he, he's, he's awesome. Yeah. So, jeez, that's how it happens. <laughs> it does. We're in the sea. Oh, we're, right, right. Yeah. We're in the ocean. The Grammys are over. Right. We have found genes that respond... Uh, to light and also proteins and other organisms that emit light when triggered. Mm-hmm. I'll let you walk people through what those two things are, but the point is they said we've got the two components to make this happen. We, we can build we can, them Yeah, better. we can control genes by turning on a light, uh-huh. and we can also uh, see what happens when something responds to the light. We just need to be able to get these uh, two things from two different organisms into one thing that we can control. Exactly, exactly. And that's the entire basis of optogenetics. Um, I think you did a fine job of explaining it. Well, I didn't know if you want to talk literally about the jellyfish. and. Well, sure. So 
If you don't mind. No, it's great. So the algae, like green algae, has something called an eye. So it's like a single cell organism, right? Yeah. Uh, and it has an eye hole, which is light sensitive. It's a light sensitive area on the cell. And when sunlight hits that eye hole, it triggers the tail of the algae to start moving toward the sunlight so that that single cell algae can can um, maximize its exposure to sunlight as much as possible. All right. So that's one half. You got the thing that sees light and reacts to it. Right. And again, all this stuff has to do with ion channels that has to do with the concentration of minerals inside and outside of these the cell in these channels, right? Yes. And that's what triggers this movement. That's what triggers the electrical impulse. That's the basis of all life, apparently, are the movement of minerals inside and outside of cell membranes triggering electrical impulses. That's life. That's right. Isn't that bizarre? It is. So then with jellyfish, they have a similar thing, too. We're not exactly sure why they fluoresce, but say like a predator comes up and they sense like a predator's coming, it might trigger a change in their ion concentration, which triggers a protein that fluoresces to be produced. So the jellyfish starts to to glow. And these are two separate things. But like you were saying, at some point, I think in 2005, a team led by Carl Deseroth, um published a paper that said, hey, man, we can take this algae uh, light-sensitive gene and we can take this jellyfish fluorescent gene and put them together and then take that so that one triggers the other in like kind of this Rubik's cube way so that if you shine light on this one gene, it will trigger the production of this fluorescence. And we can, if we can just figure out how to take that gene combination and put it into another organism that doesn't have either, then we could shine a light on that organism and make the cells in that organism glow. And now finally, finally, just the Ferraris would start to move Mm -hmm. when we signaled for them to move. We don't have to set a city block on fire. We don't have to coat everything in glowing paint. We can just signal to the Ferraris. Can you believe this? Uh, it's it's astounding that that they figured out not only like in theory how to do this, but they are, have actually over the last fifteen years been successful in doing it. It seems like something that if someone was describing, they would just be laughed out of a room. Yeah, and say, yeah, that's great. Take right. this jellyfish thing, and this algae it. thing, put them together, shove it in a fruit fly up a fruit fly's butt, <laughs> and then shine a light on his face and make him rob a bank. I think that's <laughs> I think that's how that's the ultimate goal really. It's unbelievable. It really is, Chuck. All right, so the fruit fly is a, a great little candidate because we've been working with fruit flies for a long long time when it Plus, comes to genetics. They also um we share like genes and gene sequences that are so closely matched that when we find a like a novel gene in a fruit fly, we go look at the human genome and just try to find its match, and it <laughs> usually matches. That's how closely related we are. 75% of human genetic diseases are also found in fruit flies. This all seems made up. It, it Am does. I being punked? <laughs> Maybe. Is this going to come out April 1st? Maybe. Oh. Uh, so the fruit fly is a great little candidate for all those reasons, and for one other reason, is we can actually... Uh, we don't need to cut a fruit fly's head open to see its brain. We can see that little guy's brain through a microscope. That's pretty great. Which is a pretty good way to analyze something just by letting it do its 
it do its thing, you know? It's, especially as far as the fruit fly is concerned. Oh, sure. It's well. like, yeah, just just hold me down. That's fine. Just don't cut my head off. Yeah, but you're setting people up to think it's all wine and roses. Yeah. <laughs> it gets pretty bad. That's when you pull the rug out from under him, Chuck. <laughs> so what's happening, though, is they're putting that stuff in a fruit fly, and then what you do is you have to breed like a next generation, I think. I don't think it would work on that one, would it? Um, no, but but you can very easily cultivate like a fruit fly colony that oh, is sure. now genetically modified. Yeah, just throw some throw them in a cage with some martinis and <laughs> it's all yeah. over. A little bit of Sinatra classics. <laughs> so this is what they did, and it was successful. And so this gave them the ability uh, to to do two things: to map out where all these neurons are which was the first kind of big part of this problem. Mm -hmm. And the second thing they could do is actually activate these neurons with light. Right. So now, like one of the first things they experimented on, are you ready to pull the rug out from people? Uh, Sure. One of the first um, fruit fly experiments that they they conducted, or I shouldn't say one of the first, but one of the big ones, was that um, they... They genetically modified fruit flies whose neurons responsible for their escape reflex, mm-hmm. which is when their legs tense up and their wings tense up and they just fly away when they sense danger. These were now genetically modified with an algae and jellyfish combination uh, gene sequence. That's right. So they shined a light on the fruit flies and the fruit flies sprung away. And they said, that's pretty great, but... That's, makes sense. It's entirely possible that we just scared them with the light. Sure. How could we possibly figure out if the actual neurons are being activated optogenetically? Right. And in the movie scene, you just hear a voice on the other side of a desk of some uh, scientist eating Chinese food out of a box. <laughs> right. He goes, you know, you can cut their heads off and they still live for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. You should do that. I imagine instead, um, Robert, what's his name, like scratching the chalkboard slowly. <laughs> Robert Shaw. With, with, yeah, with his idea about cutting their heads off. They, they could probably shoot it both ways. Because just like Mike the Headless Chicken had a lot of his brain left when they cut his head off, so too with the fruit fly. There are genes um, or neurons, I should say, associated with the escape reflex that are not just located in the fruit fly's head. Right. So they cut the fruit flies' heads off because, like you said, or like the guy eating Chinese food said, um, the fruit fly will still be able to fly around and and move around for Mm -hmm. a little while without a head. So they cut the heads off, and then they shine the light into the thorax where some of these neurons are. And sure enough, the fruit flies sprung away and flew into the air, headless, zombie-like. But they did it specifically because those neurons were reacting to light. So they successfully showed that you can control the behavior of a once-living uh, organism by shining a light on it once you genetically modified its, its neurons with these proteins. Yeah, I wanted to know a little bit more about that second part. I'm sure they can, did a lot of other controls, but mm-hmm. my first instinct was, how close was this light? Did it feel like the air move when they put it in front of it or was it, you know, distance. But, you know, they're scientists. I'm sure uh, Rodney and his Chinese food, I'm sure he had a lot of other great suggestions for everybody. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The other questions are, did they mash the heads with their thumbs to make sure there was no (laughs) way that they were getting any light info? All right. I feel like we should take another break (laughs) because what we've described is almost a miracle. Yeah. But like, what good does that do us? 
Great question. And we'll, we'll talk about what good it could do us right after this. Okay, so the fruit fly experiment that was a that was pretty huge, and it wasn't it didn't just end with fruit flies. Like we said, they've successfully experimented with mice, with fish, mm-hmm. um, worms. They, I think worms. Yep, and all of these are they they use these um, these types of uh, of um, ion channels or ion pumps called dopsins or opsins. It's specifically rhodopsins. Mm-hmm. They re- they respond to light. They're stimulated by light. Um, but they've figured out how to insert different ones into different genes. And um, eventually, what they're thinking is that if we can figure out how to use these in humans, we will be able to do all manner of things, some of which we've already successfully demonstrated on, on um, things like mice and, and fruit flies, not just to get a human to jump using our escape reflex, but things like um, treating depression is a big one. Well, yeah, that's sort of one of the the huge potential benefits here is what if we could literally control the re- release of dopamine in someone's brain and when people suffer from depression and they're having a hard time, getting their dopamine uh, reactions to occur naturally. Yeah. Instead of putting them on pills, which, you know, a pill doesn't just affect the cells uh, that it needs to. That's why they have a whole list of side effects Mm -hmm. because they affect everything. Yeah. Um, They're like, maybe we can get so specific that we can literally turn on those cells with light, give someone a dopamine hit that will take seconds Instead of weeks and weeks of being on medication that may or may not work and may or may not have devastating side effects. Yeah, and you just hit the nail on the head that the effect will take seconds. Um, That's one of the really big um, advantages of optogenetics is it's light controlled. And we have really great lights that can turn on and off very, very quickly. Like um, lasers connected to fiber optics is one way that they have figured out how to deliver this. I saw a cute heartbreaking picture of a mouse with like this kind of plastic helmet on the side of its head oh, and man. coming out of it was a single fiber optic cable. You remember those fiber optic kind of brushes mm-hmm. that had like a light source at the bottom and like the, the brush itself was just this beautiful colorful thing. Yeah, I used to sell those at the laser show. <laughs> I love those. I went and looked through like Google images and pictures of those and was uh-huh. just like, God, these are so pretty. Oh man, kids went nuts for them. So they had one of those fiber optic little fibers coming out of the mouse's head. And the mouse is just this little derp looking at the camera, like mm-hmm. what? Um, but they can they can connect the end of that fiber optic cable to a laser, and it will deliver that light source to inside the mouse's brain. The problem is, is there's um, all sorts of brain damage that you can create by inserting even like a really tiny fiber optic fiber into the brain of something. Sure. But it is one way to do it. Now, um, what they're working on also is, like I said, those rhodopsins. Um, one of the one of the ones they're looking at is uh, like red shifted toward the red end of the spectrum, which means that you can use something like infrared light, which is absorbed more deeply into the body uh, as an external light source. So you just shine like an infrared light through the skull, and then that will. Um, will activate the neurons in, in the brain too. So I don't remember exactly how we started on this, but there's there's stuff that we're starting to figure out from these mouse models, um, 
including things like treating depression. Oh, yeah, how precise it is, how precise the, the delivery of light is. Right. Which is really, really important because the timing of neurons um, and the, the, uh, the triggering them and the, the cascade of events that it sets off is extremely precisely timed. So you couldn't just use like a flashlight no. and expect to treat depression. You would have to be able to, to time it in the way that the brain's supposed to be doing it in the first place. Yeah, what I wonder is if in the future, <laughs> and first of all, you've got to get past all the ethical hurdles of gene therapy to begin with, right? which are many um, and complex. So let's say we do get through all that and let's say we get FDA approval to start therapies like this. What kind of – what does that look like? Because if it happens in seconds, does do you make an appointment and go to a, a, a specialist who does this light therapy? Or is this something that you – do you have a device that you're in control of? Right. So, like, it, it would probably follow a model like deep brain stimulation, which you mentioned earlier – where you have electrodes implanted in your brain that are doing basically the same thing, mm -hmm. but a, a lot less precise and a lot more clumsy, but they're electrically stimulating neurons, say, that release dopamine to treat depression. I don't know if we're doing that yet, but there's definitely deep brain stimulation. But do you um, go to a place to have no, that done? You have like a pacemaker-like device connected via wire from your brain, and then the device is like under your skin and your chest. But it's being controlled... Um, by a computer, like but, you have an onboard computer on you, on you. Right, but what I'm saying is, you don't like carry around a button. No, it's under your skin. Okay, so, so the, how would this work then? I would guess the same way that we would figure out exactly from studying optogenetically these neurons that glow when when they go off. So we'll figure out the brain pathways and the regions responsible for things like depression and all that. We would figure out what the standard normal pattern is and then and teach a computer to recreate it and then the computer yeah. would regulate it when needed in the brain. Okay. Well, that makes a little more sense. But I mean, just that kind of stuff, like just that alone shows you how far we are from actually oh, yeah. doing this in humans. Like we have no idea what the normal pattern in the brain is for like um, the the like normal serotonin release for you know, a normal mood. But it also raises these other questions too, Chuck, where it's like, okay, if we figure that out and we figure out how to, um, how to, how to replicate that, why stop there? Like, why not just make everybody happier than we are normally? Yeah, which brings in the whole free will uh, debate, which has been around since the dawn of time. Yeah. And it also, um, and Ed does a great job of kind of wrapping it up and pointing out that kind of makes you think about things. Like, if we... Are we just a bag of cells that can be uh, manipulated by a flashing light? Yes. Like, uh, <laughs> is that what you're saying is yes, we are? Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, is that what happiness is? Like, you think happiness is seeing your dog when you get home from work and getting those licks. But mm -hmm. if those are just synapses firing, that's a very, I mean, that's scientifically what's going on, but it is a very cold, inhumane way to look at things, I think. I, I disagree with that. I think it's just a, that's a better understanding of what's going on, but I don't think it undermines the happiness you're experiencing. I think for a lot of people it might. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's not like I can't see how it wouldn't, but to yeah. me it's like, no, no, I mean, you're still experiencing happiness. The happiness is still important to you. Happiness is still the point of life. This is just understanding the mechanism that we experience happiness by. That's true, and I have seen you around dogs, and you constantly are just saying, 
I'm a bag of neurons firing at once. It's like uh, Francis Crick, the guy who <laughs> co-discovered DNA, he had a, a book in the 70s called The Astonishing Hypothesis. Mm-hmm. I know we've talked about it before, but he had yeah, this famous so. quote where he said, you're nothing but a pack of neurons. Yeah. And I mean, like, to me, it's that's a really good way of maintaining a positive outlook on things. Yeah. Like, no matter how bad things get, it's just neurotransmitters in your head that are going haywire or that yeah, are that doing no their thing. Over. Right. Well, that's that's when, that's when that's the reason to do all this, is to regain control over it when it's not functioning correctly. And then making things even better than they are normally, naturally. There's no written law that says that if we figure out how to make ourselves happier that we shouldn't do that. As a matter of fact, basically every moral code there is says we should do that. If we can be happier, let's figure out how to be happier. Yeah, I think the other thing it makes me think about slippery slope-wise is Mm -hmm. um, will people cease to do the things that they do to make them happy if they can simply touch a button to do so? Yeah, that's called wireheading. And that's actually a big problem with artificial intelligence is um, they're saying like, okay, if we train artificial intelligence to do something based on a reward, uh-huh. the artificial intelligence is just going to go figure out how to go right Get to the reward, reward button. Yeah. It's, it's going to circumvent that. Um, and that's, that's a great question too, where if we start to become like digital consciousness, right, where we migrate online and we uh-huh. shed our bodies and our consciousness just exists in digital form, then all that stuff will be available to us. And it does make you think like, okay, if if our existence is just digital, if there's no purpose to it except to experience pleasure, is there anything wrong with just sitting around and experiencing pleasure all the time, or do we need more than that? I don't know. That's a that's a next next level question, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, it kind of. Do you ever see Wall E? Yes. Sort of like that. The could be the future. Like, why go out and take a walk if you're feeling down? Right. To get some sunshine on your face, if you can just press a button to do the same thing. Yeah, and uh, like in that movie, it's it's like there's, well, there's something inherently wrong with that. But I don't know, man, because like if you think about it, when you go outside and you get a walk, you feel better. You feel like more positive. Mm-hmm. If you can get that without doing the walk, do you, if you can get everything from a walk without having to go on a walk, do you still need to go on a walk? Well, including like the benefits to your health and body? Yes. If you could get every single scrap <clears throat> of benefit that you can get from a walk, digitally or somehow without actually going on a walk, do you need to go on a walk? I, I say yes, but you and I are different. No, no, I, I'm with you. I still say yes as well, oh, but I can't, I can't explain why. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm not just like this full transhumanist guy. I, no, I definitely not. have questions about the whole thing too. I think you just spilled some bong water on the carpet too. <laughs> <laughs> That's never going to come out. I'm going to sop it up with a Febreze uh, oh, yeah, that dryer works. sheet. Remember that? Remember uh, when uh, when kids you saw kids do that at the dorms? Yeah, I don't know if kids had Febreze dryer sheets when I was in college. They didn't exist yet. Oh, okay. Or you mean just like the the bounce sheets? Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I've seen I've seen those old tricks. It's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious. Okay, well, you got anything else about optogenetics? No, it's pretty pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. Agreed. Or actually, we probably won't see where it goes in our lifetime, but. I don't know, man. I suspect that while we're alive, things are going to change quite a bit. We'll, think, we'll live to see a lot of this stuff. Yeah. I'm going to check in with you in in 35 years. Okay. You'll be we, sitting uh, across the desk from me still. When we get commemorated into the Podcasting Hall of Fame. And well, you're, you're just, on that, aren't you? You're going to stroll into that room wearing your, your VR headset. <laughs> 
pressing your little dopamine button. <laughs> right. Talking about how great life is. Right. Just wire-headed to the gills. That's right. So uh, if you want to know more about optogenetics, well, go start reading about it. It's pretty interesting stuff. And since I said that, it's time for Listener Mail. Uh, listener Mail. I think it was me who goofed up on the postal, going postal ep. Uh, when uh, I think I offhandedly, when they were talking about the uh, Califano Commission, mm-hmm. about how much money was spent, I think I said, tax dollar money. Yeah. Uh, like a dope. <laughs> because we've covered the U.S. Postal Service, and we know that that is not the case. And this is from Peter, among many others. Hey, guys, I wanted to start off by saying how much I love the show. You always do a great job researching the subjects you talk about. However, I knew, however, I got a small bone to pick in your recent episode. Uh, why Postal Employees Go Postal. You talk about how the U.S. Postal Service spent $4 million tax dollars on the Joseph Califano Commission. While Congress does still control the USPS budget, it receives no funding from them at all and has not since the early 1980s. Uh, the USPS operates solely on the money they make from stamps and packages. Zero tax dollars. Anyway, thanks for the amazing content. May you keep doing so for many years to come. That is from Peter and many, many others. That was very kind, Peter. And by the way, we heard from a lot of people, uh, postal employees or people whose family was in, or are or were in the postal service. And we got a range of things from, you guys are crazy, my post office is great, there's no toxic environment, mm-hmm. to people saying, oh, there absolutely is a very toxic environment. Yeah, like it's even worse than you guys said. Yeah, so I think for the people that wrote in that said that was not the case, then I am very happy that you work in mm-hmm. a great place that has mm-hmm. a great environment. But Agreed. it seems like uh, there is a range there. Right. That's the nicest way to say it. Yeah. Uh, well, that was Peter, right? Peter. Thanks a lot, Peter. That was a very nice way to put it. And if you want to get in touch with us like Peter did, you can go uh, and send us an email. Send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.